Tonight on the programme on Arena Scream 6, My Sailor, My Love and Champions are the movies up for review and director Marcus O'Brien on revisiting the real-life characters of Eat the Peach in his documentary. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And we start, as usual, on Thursday night with film reviews. Ghostface returns in Scream 6. He's out and about in New York City this time. How will the franchise fare without Neve Campbell? Woody Harrelson plays Marcus Marakovic in Champions. He's a gifted basketball coach on a downward slide when he crashes his car while drunk. He has two choices, an 18-month prison term or community service coaching a teenage basketball team comprising young men with learning difficulties. And finally, a complicated romance develops in My Sailor, My Love. Actors James Cosmo and Breed Brennan were with us on Arena last Thursday to tell us about this Finnish-Irish co-production shot on Ackle Island. Gemma Cray and Dave Hanratty have been watching and they are with me in studio this evening. Let's start with Scream 6. <laughs> the never-ending yeah, Scream franchise, it would seem. Where are we at this point in the franchise, Gemma? So there, there, it, we are at number six, the sixth instalment. Mm. The last one was just Scream 2022. Which was a but kind of a reboot, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, sort of a reboot. Like, they're all very self-aware. And now when they were, you know, implicating the reboot rules, we know how the original dealt with this is the rule of a horror slasher film. Like, they all have their area. And this one is very fully committed to mm. being a franchise. And the rules of the franchise are simple. It means that anyone is on the table to be murdered. Everyone is a suspect. There's, um, yeah, like it's <laughs> like, yeah, that it, it needs to continue. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's tense the whole way through. And that, that, I mean, they sound like the simplest of rules, but they are they are two great rules for a kind of a thriller stroke horror stroke. Kind of, there's a touch of comedy in there, self-effacing uh, comedy in there. You know, anybody can die. And anybody can be the killer, a bit like when you're playing um, murder at home. <laughs> yeah, know? it's um, the Scream series is a supremely self-aware one, and it's been that way since the very first film back in 1996. Uh, it, it petered out at a certain point, and then it kind of came back again, mm. much like the killer at the end of the movie, and, and it yet another one of its many cliches. And then it came back again in 2022, but this time it was quite smart. It was quite sharp. It was like it was well written. Wes Craven, who oversaw the first four of them, unfortunately has since passed on. Mm. So it's very much about honouring his legacy. The last film literally had a closing credit of for Wes and so the new directors uh, Radio Silence they're a duo they they made Ready or Not and they have the, the keys to the kingdom here essentially and so they're the ones overseeing all the butchery in New York City this time around Yeah I, I suppose the change to New York City um, that's something particularly new for this one Gemma Yeah so the, the, the kind of suburban town of Woodsboro California which is real like Anywhereville mm. USA those those classic ones that are very familiar from the 80s horrors um, yeah it, it definitely adds more life more bustle to it. it makes it familiar it ramps up the tension so in the very first scene we see um, Samara weaving being brutally toyed with and then killed and then a twist in the middle of a, yeah. of a bustling street where everyone's dressed up one of the sequences takes place on um, the subway which is scary enough anyway 
Uh, and um, that opening scene has been much praised, uh, Dave. Are you among the praisers? Yeah, I quite like it. I mean, again, like a Bond film, Scream have their own kind of opening scene signatures where mm. XYZ has to happen and it gets you in the mood for the rest of the two hours to come. And I think, yeah, there's there's a twist on the formula in this one without giving too much away and it is quite ingenious. Um, I will say that there was a part of me that kind of went, oh, I almost wish you didn't twist the knife mm. even further there before the familiar title card came up. But at the same time, uh, it's a new spin on an old formula and yeah. that's part of why I think that this franchise has life left in the ghost yet. Managed, yeah. Um, if, I, I, I'm wary about going too far down plot because it does get obviously the twists and the turns of what it's all about but we've two sets of siblings uh, and I suppose it's the two sisters uh, what's, their, what's their surname the Carpenter so, sisters that are really the important part of this. So kind of. uh, yeah Tara and Sam they were the two sisters in the original one there were four from the original one survived into this film so there's two sisters and, and then a set of twins as well. Um, so these are, they've all moved together to uh, New York, your safety in numbers. Um, Tara is starting to try to start her own life, do normal things as a teenager, while her sister is sort of processing the pain as, as the older one and, and is concerned for her sister's well-being. And meanwhile, all of society has blamed Sam really as the killer. And um, she's been kind of dubbed as this conspiracy theory favourites to have actually mm. plotted all the last series of murders so she's dealing with that on top of the stress of her sister and now a new uh, series of very violent killings start happening all around them um, and the investigation begins then and she's at the forefront and uh, Gemma mentioning there Dave the violence um, and you both have mentioned turning the knife but there's more than a knife involved in this series for sure yeah Is uh, is, is the violence necessary does it does it hang about too much. I don't think it lingers too much. They have ramped up the brutality, definitely, and there might be a couple of moments where you you may well win, so you probably will. Mm. Uh, but again, as the series itself comments on via the form of its own characters, when you have a successful sequel to a horror film, the body count is bigger, the budget is bigger, the, there's lashings of blood. So I would say, yeah, look, if you're super squeamish, approach with caution. But I never felt too uncomfortable. It, you know, you're, it's so clear you're watching a film. It is a pantomime. Scream films, like I say, follow a formula. You're sitting there, you're waiting to find out who the killer is. It's not to be taken too seriously. It's very tongue-in-cheek in that regard. But it is super violent. And Dave Campbell, how quickly do they dispatch the fact that she's not part of this film? Um, and it, 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 does, does the film really miss her? Because she, she's been there from, you know, she's a big part of it really, isn't she? Yeah, and one of the reasons she said that she didn't come back was because she felt like she wasn't offered enough money and she wasn't valued and felt that that was a gender issue, that she wouldn't have mm. been in that position had she been um, a man. And I wonder how much of that is true um, like Gail we- everyone talks about her so lovingly and said oh she's not going to be in this give Sydney my best like she's constantly around and, and mentioned mm. and there is it's that kind absence of left, they've left yeah. it open for her to come back really Maybe. haven't they yeah, yeah if, they, if they smooth it over so there was a budget of, of 30 million so it'll be interesting to see what everyone got it's going to make a lot of money, though. I mean, like it's already projected to be maybe one of the better Scream opening weekends, you know, worldwide and, and so forth. So mm. I think it's going to make money. I think it's going to make bank. I think they'll get her back. She's actually been still supporting the franchise. She hasn't turned against them. She's just made very valid points, as Gemma said. Actors like Skeel Ulrich, who was in the first one and kind of comes back in ghost form, and these ones has said we stand behind her. It's clear that the relationship isn't fully broken down, and I think the film stands on its own. I mean, you miss her presence for sure, but the new characters are good and they are compelling, and actors 
actresses like Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega mm. have um, really kind of taken these roles on as their own and they're doing a really good job. Yeah, and I suppose Courtney Cox being in there, maybe they should adopt a type of a friends mechanism where they all go in together and say, pay us this or none of us are doing <laughs> yeah. this. You know, maybe maybe well, that's the way. Jenna, uh, Courtney Cox is there again, yeah. yeah. And again, like it was nice to see her, I think, I don't want to give spoilers away yeah. for people to go back and, and see the franchise, but you also have another um, beloved character. Um, it's Kirby. So she's, she's a survivor from the past, one of the past yeah. ones and she's come back as an FBI agent now investigating the case. So they, they do yeah. play up the nostalgia for people who are fans of the, the thing. But it's also fine to watch it if you haven't seen any of them yeah, in can, a long that's time. What you, I was kind of what I was asking you at the beginning, yeah. where are we in, in this? It kind of doesn't matter. You can really pick these, the Scream ones in particular, you can pick them up and just, you'll, you'll kind of work out that that Definitely, was in one yeah. of the previous films. It's yeah. audience participation yeah. stuff as well. Horror fans know what they're getting. Yeah. Um, our outstanding performances or standout performances for you, Dave, as, as you wrap and give us your stars? Uh, I do think the aforementioned Melissa Barrera, who plays Sam, I think her performance here was much stronger than the previous one. I thought she was a little bit shaky in that one. Jenna Ortega is a rising star. She was in She's Wednesday She's sister, Netflix, Tara. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like they're compelling. But I thought uh, Mason Gooding and Jasmine Savoy-Brown as the twins, they're, they're really, really charming. Like Mason Gooding, the filmmakers have said that he was supposed to be killed in the fifth one, but they liked him so much as an actor that here he is again in the sixth one. So like, that goes a long way for the resume, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that certainly helps. So Starks, what did you say? Three, I think that the writers kind of dropped the ball towards the end, but I really have do, I, I do have a love for this series and I will go watch the next one as well. Yeah, right, waiting for seven already. Absolutely, yeah. And what are you saying overall, Gemma, and I stars? loved the fast-paced nature of it. I thought, you know, it, it wasn't broken. They didn't, uh, it wasn't, the formula wasn't broken, so they, they, they don't need to fix it and four stars. Four stars to be. All right, let's move on then to film number two and it's Champions this time. Feel good. Comedy, dramedy, I suppose, really, is what we're talking about here, Dave, directed by Bobby Farley. Yes, that is Bobby Farley of There's Something About Mary Fame and it stars Woody Harrelson. That's two good starting points for this film. Yeah, um, you've seen this film a lot, though, is the mm. thing. I mean, this is a comedy drama, as you say. It feels teleported in from the year 1997, and that's before you even get to the the uh, tub-thumping by Chumbawamba needle drop that happens about half an hour in. Um, Woody Harrelson plays a basketball coach in the minor leagues. He's looking to get to the major leagues, but he has a bust-up with Ernie Hudson, who is his head coach at the uh, team that they uh, coach for, essentially. Uh, he then goes out and unwisely gets drunk, drink drives home, crashes into a police car, and is told in a very, very movie setup way, uh, you can either go to prison for 18 months or you can coach a regional Special Olympics basketball team. And what I wonder what, 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 what he's going to do. Do you think he's going to pick? Yeah, 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 yeah Well, I suppose there's, there's no film. If you, well, it's a different, very different film if he chooses the, the former option. Um, let's have a listen to a clip, actually, which will give us a sense. This is the uh, Marcus, uh, Marcus, the Woody Harrelson character, getting uh, introducing himself to the new team and, to say the very least, getting something of a mixed reaction. My name is Marcus Marikovic, and I am going to be your basketball coach for the next three months. Nope. Wait, what? I said nope. Is this something he normally does? Nope. That's Darius. He's our best player. I'm Johnny. I'm your homie with an extra crummy. There we go. Scene from Champions Woody Harrelson introducing himself to his to his new team. Um I suppose you can see where this is going and obviously we, we hear the, the learning difficulties of the various members of the, of the basketball team there. How is that aspect of the story handled, Gemma? I think it's quite fun because each of the characters that he interacts with um, 
they're very crass and funny. They're not, you know, like presenting it as an issues-based film. Yeah, well, Homie was an extra you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's fine for him to say that. Yeah, yeah, they have they have their own arcs. They mm. have their own camaraderie. Like, and in in many ways, like they're they're the fully rounded people that have smaller things to get mm. when it's when it's Marcus himself who really has to learn and grow. Um, and you really kind of feel for them. The, what this film does very well is establish their little foibles. Their like, I mean, their their crass humor, their their consistent amount of dick jokes as well. You're like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you you cringe a little bit, but I think that's the, the there's like warts and all things. Yeah, it's, so it's not sentimental and yeah. it's not sentimentalizing these characters in any way, Dave. Uh, well, there is a sentimentality too, I suppose, but it's more that it's good natured, it's big hearted. Mm. I mean, I, you know, you hear about this premise on paper and you kind of immediately go, oh Christ, I hope they don't mock anybody I hope they don't like punch down on the vulnerable mm. and that's not the case whatsoever and it should be said that you know Bobby Farley who directed this one of the Farley brothers they've often had disabled actors in their movies and tried to put out that message into the world so you know maybe my own kind of preconceived notions about it being like crass were off base it, it isn't at all it is a feel good film but I, I would say that any problem I have with the film would be that it is so predictable and you've seen it a thousand times I mean I think Johnny Knoxville has made this exact film called The Ringer years ago mm. but also like I you know like and I say this like with tongue in cheek myself but you could go and watch this film you could have a notepad in front of you and a pen and say okay I will predict what will happen in this film beat by beat and it does and that's okay there is a place in the world for a comfort hug mm. of a film and I was going to ask when you after you take the notebook will you laugh in the bits that where you should laugh and will you cry at the pieces where you should cry does it does it manipulate or does it allow you just in, indulge those emotions I think it's so light hearted and I think it doesn't dwell on too much negativity. Like even Marcus's, like even Marcus's negative aspects are sort of gone after the first sequence. Like he's he's fully in, he's fully invested in these characters really, really fast. So it becomes not so much about him really needing to change, more so about them getting to the regionals and overcoming their own issues. Mm. It's really nice, but I don't actually think it plays on the heartstrings too much in many ways. One of the nicest um, elements of the the film was the relationship between um, Alex, who's Caitlin Olsen, and her brother Johnny um, and the way that they they really form a bond and I think that was the bit that I found to be the, the sweetest most and the touching. most authentic yeah. it was about about this young man wanting to go out and to make his way in the world and, and about her trying to be overly protective and, and I thought that was one of the nicest mm. storylines Performances standout performances for you Dave? Uh, the aforementioned Caitlin Olsen who people will know from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia she's a great <laughs> comic actress but she gets mm. a bit more to do here and it's also a reminder of why don't we see Caitlin Olsen in more films like this or rom-coms because she's extremely capable and Woody Harrelson's Woody Harrelson I say that as a compliment because he's such a steady hand he can do this kind of thing in his sleep and he's just about charming enough here uh, stars from you on it Dave it's the most three star film ever made the most three star film ever made you had you had um, some inner turmoil on this one Gemma I believe yeah. between your inner critic and your inner teen I did I'm I'm a sucker for terrible dick jokes and, and body humour and I, I did think it was so by the numbers that my critic gave it a two but then that inner teen gave it a three and a half so I'm going to stick with three <laughs> in between yeah. so you've decided to compromise between both aspects of that of yourself okay the film there Champions based I should have said by the way there was a, a Spanish version of this film was back in 2018, 2018. Campiones yeah. Campiones and, and and did you see that it's basically the exact same film same yeah. film except in <laughs> Spanish okay let us move on then to our third and final movie this evening, My Sailor, My Love. 
um, all roads lead to Ackle Island even as I was coming in this evening I heard the report on drive time about how Ackle Island is gearing up for um, for, for Sunday night into Monday morning isn't it for uh, Banshees of Inisherin, which as I found out when I spoke to James Cosmo and Breed Brennan was shot on Ackle Island at exactly the same time as their film My Sailor My Love uh, two different films totally give us the basic setup if you would here Gemma of course so James Cosmo plays Howard and he's a retired sea captain he lives alone his adult kids have moved away his two sons are abroad and he's mainly looked after by his daughter Grace who pops in and out when she can at the mm. weekends because she works as a nurse in, in the city so he's he's kind of cantankerous but he's struggling to live alone his health is is failing um and you know he but he keeps pushing everyone away grace is kind of desperate to 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 help him in quite a performative way and i think when she finds his jocks in the sink mm. that was the final straw for her and she calls annie in who's a local widow to help um howard around the house played by breed brennan and to you know give him a bit of support and and like that because the, the yeah. place is a mess yeah, and and she, she comes out. It's initially, a very cool reception. Again, you kind of see that that's going to happen. Obviously, it's not going to be all everything happy in the in the in the on the boat or on the ship initially. But uh, he, after his initial coolness, he decides that perhaps he was a little harsh, and he goes to talk to her a couple of days later to see uh, if see if she might reconsider. This is uh, James Cosmo as Howard, uh, Breed Brennan as Annie, and he's appearing in the the pub where uh, James uh, Breed Brennan. His daughter is working with her kids. Mom! 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 What? Hi, Mr. Grouse. Can I help you with something? I, I was just looking for Annie. If you want to take our Nana out, you have to take us with you. Mom's working. No, no, not at all. Sure, I can look after the kids. No! No need. Mr. Grimes and I will only be a minute. Mm. See ya. How dare you? Just turn up here at my home. I just came to apologize. Are you the kind of man who puffs himself up by humiliating women? Well, let me tell you, Howard Grimes. I am nobody's fool. I just came to apologize and uh, to ask you to come back. James Cosmo and Breed Brennan there in a sale from uh, a scene from My Sailor My Love, which incidentally won Best Irish Film at the at the Dublin International Film Festival. They were also very proud of that on, on Drive Time and in, in Ackle earlier on today as well. It's the chemistry between, particularly between those two, between James Cosmo and Breed Brennan, that's vital to this film, Gemma. Yeah, um, he play someone who is so stagnant and almost calcified in, in his persona and she's someone who's so warm but strong in her own mm. in her own self and there's such an authentic warm chemistry builds between mm. them it's a, it's a slow burn it feels so natural that you can you, you really in the very beginning when it happens you're really gunning for them to to go and i think what this film does very cleverly is unwrap the, their their yeah. relationship and and maybe show a little bit about their history and about how you know that kind of comes back to play and maybe causes issues yeah, further down it, the line. At one level, you think, oh yeah, of course, that it's all going to be fine, and you think it's formulaic. But then there's this other storyline which has to do with the daughter played by Catherine Walker, 
which kind of derails the the relationship between the uh, the Annie character between Bridge Brennan's character and James Cosmo's character. Yeah, it's a darker, tougher film than uh, you might you expect think, from the yeah. poster. Even you know, like it looks like oh, here's a nice old person romance or something, you know, and like that's part of it. But it's not really about that at all. It's about the the, the ties that bind us, the familial trauma that haunts us, and the mistakes and the decisions that we make in life that we perhaps can't fix. And yeah, and I will say, like you know, just to kind of echo, I think what what, what we've been saying even off mic, the performances in this film are astounding. They are mm. brilliant. Like it's a three-hander really between the three leads, James Cosmo, Breed Brennan, and Catherine Walker. Catherine Walker arguably has the toughest role because yeah. she's playing the daughter who is very unsympathetic. She has her reasons to be, but you know, she gets in the middle of these two, and we want these two to succeed. We were rooting for them, and then all of a sudden, halfway through a division occurs but at every turn through every character arc and beat I was just knocked out by the performances here I think everyone involved is magnificent and the young kids are brilliant as well and they, they both um, Breed and James Cosmo Breed Brennan and James Cosmo were at great pains to point out that Klaus Harrow just lets things happen and that's that's this film has that feel of it yeah there's there's a deep truthful authenticity of something that's really well observed and you got to wonder like I mean he is sort of an industry darling this is his first mm, English language yeah. film like he's bringing those skills there there's such a fine line of nuance like this is one of the most interesting ones because it doesn't like you can't predict where it's going from the beginning and the end like I mean in some ways there's inevitability in some ways you know you, you hope for things to work out well and things do and th- like it's just it's a complicated uh, thing and it like you life a couple of times. Yeah. catches you out a couple of times yeah stars from you Gemma Oh, four stars. Four stars from you, and from you overall, uh, I think you had some reservations. Yeah, I got three and a half because, like, I, I think I think the performances are brilliant. I think at times the narrative kind of just it rushes on occasion. It rushes through kind of important moments. I didn't buy one of the resolutions, but it's a very, very admirable and accomplished film. And I'm not ashamed to say, at one stage, I cried my eyes out. Good man. <laughs> I think you weren't alone in that one. <laughs> my sailor, my love. The film, the third of the films we were speaking about this evening. The other two being Scream Six and Champions. Gemma Cray. And Dave Hanriotti with me in studio. Do you remember the Irish film Eat the Peach, the comedy about two men who built a wall of death in Kildare that was inspired by two friends who built a wall of, of, of death in real life in Longford? When Glaswegian performance artist Stephen Skrinkel learns that his lifelong obsession with building and riding a wall of death was shared by these two friends, Michael Donahue and Connie Kiernan, he heads to the farm in Granard in County Longford with an audacious, audacious proposal. Construct a new wall of death with him and take it on tour. And that is the story basically at the heart of the documentary, The Artist and the Wall of Death. And the director of the film, Morris O'Brien, is with me in the studio this evening. I mean, you just say Eat the Peach. I mentioned this to a few people today. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's a documentary about Eat the Peach. And the faces lit up and the smiles came in the face. It's, it's a film that people just, it's held in huge affection in this country. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was because it was one of the first, if not the first fully Irish produced drama feature you know made in Ireland and it's just such a portrait of that time the 1980s um, you know these two unemployed guys looking for a bit of meaning in their lives and uh, they decide to build their own wall of debt in their backyard you know I grew up on a farm in County Tipperary and I just that film had a huge effect on me as a kid because the idea that you know two guys in the middle of nowhere could decide to do something that kind of weird and crazy and pull it off and become absolute local heroes you know uh, 
was always really inspirational to me. Yeah. And and I didn't realize it was based on a true story until quite recently. Yeah, you well, know. <laughs> I think I think you're not alone in that one. Stephen Brennan and and Eamon Morrissey, of course, played the two men, the two men who we see in your documentary, Michael Donoghue and and Connie Kiernan. And I know the film kind of concentrates on the drama of the men, uh, but but when you see these men again now, what? How many years later? I mean, now forty. They look about ten years old. Well, they seem about ten years older than men who might have done that back in nineteen, and they probably did it in nineteen seventy something. Yeah, yeah. It was the late seventies when they built the first wall. Um, and, you know, it was a fairly rickety looking thing from the outside, as they say in the film, but on the inside, it was kind of the perfect wall to them. But to do it again 40 years later, you know, it's no easy undertaking, mm. you know, the bruises that they pick up. Yeah, never mind building the heal. wall. They're going to have to psych- get up on the motorbike. A wall of death, just in case anybody going, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's a, a cylinder and you, you get a motorbike and you start driving around the inside of the cylinder and hope that the centrifugal force keeps you up there. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very tall circular wall that, uh, you know, it's uh, not something you want to fall off uh, from the top of, especially when you're going... 30, 40 miles yeah. an hour round in a motorbike, you know. None so, of them um, wearing helmets, I have to say, uh, which is frightening or uh, for a, to a large extent, not wearing helmets. No, well, it's because of the G-force. If you had a helmet on your head, it would pull you off the bike, you know. You're going so fast uh, around the wall, so. It's the lesser know. of two evils. You will. <laughs> <laughs> right, less of it, less of it. We should explain then. So we know who Connie and Michael are. We know Eat the Peach. We know, mm-hmm. I suppose, the basic story of this wall of death was built in Granard and, and they wanted people to come and see them defy the odds and manage to motorcycle around it. Who then is uh, Stephen Skrinka? Uh, Stephen Skrinka, the artist. So Stephen, Stephen has, uh, he's, he's a Glaswegian-based artist. His father's Ukrainian, hence the name. And he's very much a... An art, one of these artists, you know, his art is based on ideas. So one of his better known uh, works previous to this would have been called Bartered Ride, where he basically drove a black cab around Glasgow. And, you know, people people got into the cab expecting to get into a normal cab. And, and then he would tell them, you don't actually have to pay anything. You just have to do a turn. You have to do some kind of performance. And he would mm. film that. And that was the, made an artwork out of it, of basically. Art, yeah. So he's he's one of these guys that doesn't, you know, he's, his work kind of skirts failure quite often. Um, he embraces failure. He thinks failure is more uh, interesting than success in a lot of ways because he says you'll, you'll learn more from failure than you do from success. And so his obsession with the wall of death is very much based kind of on that premise in a way. And in 2010, he had done a show at the National Theatre of Scotland where... Where Neil Murray, who was part of the artistic team at the Abbey in recent times. Absolutely, yeah. Neil was Neil was the producer on that show and very, very successful. The show itself was very, very successful. But, you know, a large part of that show was the fact that Stephen was essentially a hapless apprentice learning to ride mm. the wall. And I think everybody kind of, maybe didn't assume, but the hope was that by the end of the run that he would have learned to ride the wall. But he didn't. He fell off. He was interested in me- making a piece of art. He was more interested in the piece of art, as as Neil says in the film, you know, it's not quite dying for your art, but it's not far from it because he would fall off every night and he did a lot of damage to himself, oh. you know. Um, and I think he was quite crushed by the entire experience and that's why he hadn't. He never managed to get it out of his system. Right, you know? well, I'm going to pick a, play a clip now which comes kind of after that. What he considered the failure of the show with the Scottish National Theatre. For him, it, for Stephen Skrinka, it was a failure. So he had to try to deal with it. And this is how, how he went about it. 
Eat the Peach is a film I saw many years ago. It's about two guys in Ireland. What speed did you get to? Fast enough. They become obsessed with the idea of building the wall of death. So they go about building it with whatever materials come to hand. And it becomes their quest, it becomes their dream. You doing any work nowadays? <laughs> boom, boom! <laughs> It doesn't give them the fame and the fortune that they're looking for, but that's kind of not the point. The point to me is they actually got it done and they learned how to ride it. They actually got it done. They learned how to ride it. Um, that that's Stephen Skrinka in that scene from um, the documentary that we're speaking tonight uh, about tonight. The artist on the wall of death, director Morris O'Brien, with me in the studio. So he goes off and he meets the two guys, and they, they strike up a really cordial relationship. Uh, at the beginning, they certainly do. Yeah, I mean, it's a real kind of meeting of worlds, as you see in the film. You know, Stephen being this, um, you know, very arty guy that lives in Glasgow you know, goes around kind of raiding bottle bins to get old bottles of wine and stuff and break up the, the glass and turn them into sculptures. And then you've got these two guys, you know, living in just outside of Granard. And um, I mean, I think their initial reaction when he tries to sell them the idea is, as you can imagine, a fairly strongly worded no. But I think, you know, he it was unfinished business for them as it is for him, as he says quite often in the film. And, um, you know, they kind of just, the, the dream gets reignited. Yeah. And uh, over the course of, I think it was probably 18 months to two years, they actually build a new wall of death and then begin learning to ride it, you know. Um, and, you know, things don't go quite as expected, uh, but it's... Pretty yeah. compelling to watch it. Yeah, because yeah, there's a, there's a clear falling out that we don't get into the the whys and wherefores of it because you don't do that in the movie. I'm guessing that's because there are complications there that there are different versions of that story. So we should probably leave that to the one side for fear we give the wrong version of the, of of what actually happened. But you continued then uh, following Stephen. He was not to be deterred. Well. Yes, I mean, uh, there's a there's a there's a kind of a terrible falling out with the two guys in Granard mm. uh, between them and Stephen. Um, it basically comes down to like having very different visions for the wall, and you know, there's a, there's a couple of scenes in the film where you realise that Stephen brings all brings over these various artists and theatrical types to try and work up a scratch performance for a theatre show, and you can just tell the two Irish guys, you know, they just that is not what they consider a wall of death to be about. It's about motorbikes, and that's what they want. You know, so mm. there's a there's a real uh, falling out, and it gets pretty ugly. And um, you know, to be completely honest, I don't think the producers producer John Keller, who I should say, John produced Eat the Peach, yeah, as well, as well. Yeah. And so when there was a young filmmaker called Ed Costello, when he kind of came across the story and had started doing some initial filming, he. John seemed to be the kind of uh, obvious port of call yeah. to go to. Um, but, you know, we we didn't know if we had a film at that point. You know, there was there was a hiatus for 18 months. Where, but you go in back to the footage and you, uh, you, you found the film in it. Went back to the footage and then, well, also, we, even with that footage, we knew we, we were going to need some kind of a third act, you know. Yeah. So Stephen had said he's going back to Glasgow, that he was thinking about building another wall of that. I don't think he believed it himself. You know, I don't think he didn't believe we, he would. We, we certainly didn't. And then yeah. and then lockdown came in 
and suddenly he's confined to his shed. Yeah. And so we kind of thought, well, it's definitely not going to happen now. And um, somewhat unbelievably, over the course of <laughs> lockdown, he built well, a new wall of death in his shed. And that's the story that you tell. I'm just looking at the text here. I remember seeing Eat the Peach in the 1980s. What a wonderful film. And getting flashbacks, says Tim. And your documentary has been shown at a lot of festivals with a rerun of Eat the Peach. It's it's kind of giving it a second lease of life, Morris. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we uh, we actually screened at the uh, Glasgow Film Festival during the week and we're opening at the IFI mm. and uh, on tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, it's great that yeah. it's finding a new audience, you know. Oh, listen, congratulations on it. And it certainly brings back lots of memories for me just when, because you see, we see bits of Eat the Peach in the midst of it as well, which makes me want to go back and watch that film again too. The Artist and the Wall is the title of the documentary we've been speaking about. It screens exclusively at the IFI in Dublin from Friday, March the 10th. Q&A with director Marcus. Uh, I'm, I'm insisting on calling you Marcus for some reason. <laughs> Morris O'Brien and producer John Kelleher that Morris told us about following the 6.20 screening on Friday, March the 10th. You'll find out more on ifi.e.ie. And so to album reviews, we have a big Oscars night tomorrow night, so we decided we do our album reviews tonight so that we can live in the hope and that there will be close to, as I, there can actually only be 13 wins tomorrow night. There can't be 14 because there are two people up in the same category. It's very exciting stuff, isn't it? Time for album reviews. Hard-hitting, acerbic, socially conscious British-style blenders, Sleaford Mods, Nottingham-based post-punk duos comprising of Jason Williamson and producer Andrew Fern, back with their 12th album. It's called UK Grim. Uh, we will also talk about the uh, same person who produ- produced by Kate Lebon. Milk for Flowers is the fifth studio album from since 2010 from the Welsh musician and songwriter Hugh Evans but no he's H. Hawkline and finally described by one of our reviewers as one of pop and electronic music's most singular and single-minded visionaries Fever Ray is the musical moniker of Swedish musician Karen Dreyer. Uh, their latest album is called Radical Romantics. It's out today. Sarah Hedeman and Eamon Sweeney uh, have listened to all three. One of them is responsible for the quote that I just <laughs> read. We will find out who later on. Let's start with Sleaford Mods. UK Grim is the album and here is the title track. Grim, the title of the track and the title of the album from Sleaford Mods, um, Zara Hederman and Eamon Sweeney, as I said, are reviewers on this uh, Thursday evening. Um, very well received at last album, I believe. Um, r- back in 2021, that was our Remind us of who the duo are and why, where they are coming from musically. Mm. So they've actually been around for a very long time, since the late 90s, and they have been quite consistent in their release schedule since then. Like, they're on their 12th album. Spare Ribs came out only two years ago. And they do this kind of thing where, with their album, Austerity Dogs in particular, they really came to the fore of critiquing the British government. And actually, to be fair to them, until this point... 
I do think they've done a pretty decent job at it and I have admired how they will use their music to influence younger generations which is always great okay. oh, don't, don't, don't go any further <laughs> I love the until this point let us leave <laughs> let us leave that hanging right there how, how, how um, typical of the album is that driving bass and the you know the, the, the percussion above it and then the, the kind of shouty sing voice that post-punk and punk have always yeah. given us Eamon that's pretty much it that's pretty much the template and it's been the template kind of all along John Peel famously said about the fall that what he loved about them that they're always different always the same and I think a bit applies to Sleaford Mods as well unfortunately with this album it's it's a bit more veering towards being always the same or samey mm. rather than being different Um Andrew Fern, who kind of comes up with the with, with the music, that basic template, very much kind of uh, inspired by um, Big Black and uh, Andy Weatherall's uh, Two Lorne Swordsman uh, project, which was minimal minimal techno before it even had a name. Um, it is good, but it's they have done so much better. Zara mentioned yeah. uh, the Sturdy Dogs album. That's far superior. Uh, a few years ago, they put together a compilation called All That Glue, which was absolutely a Stone Cold classic. It has its moments, but my God, yeah, okay. it's a bit more. So, so. I'll let you continue Thank now. You. Up to this point. Now, you took a breath and you were then going yeah, to say, I've calmed however, myself down. I've calmed however, down. now. I was listening again to Spare Ribs um, on the way over here and was just struck by the, the sheer difference in between those albums, majorly lyrically, because Williamson in that album, I felt, was just a bit tighter and a bit more concise. Spare Ribs now, 2021. Right. So um, that's the last album. Yeah, that's sorry. the last yeah. one. This came about actually because Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction reached out and wanted to make a song with them during lockdown and the song that they did make together well we might get to that in a bit but it's not what's it called? Uh, so Trendy oh great I have it yeah great um, <laughs> uh, but yeah this one I just felt when I listened to it and UK Grimm the song we heard opens it and I just felt Jason Williamson's vocals they always had that gravelly character to them but here I thought he sounded quite tired and it was actually a struggle for him to kind of compete with Ferns sometimes actually very good instrumentation and arrangements but I just found myself the further I went through these 14 tracks I was just rolling my eyes quite okay. a bit well for you here Thank is you. so trendy we'll, we'll get you the other 12 tracks now if you want you can listen to them <laughs> on the way home <laughs> I was, I was saying when that started out, I was, I thought that opening bass riff was quite promise. promising, yeah, but then yeah. it disappeared. And um, I, I'm looking at what the Daily Mail said in a surprise development um, <laughs> that this is a foul-mouthed left-wing duo. I presume neither of you, are, or maybe one of you, or other of you, is in that camp. Well, what, actually being a foul-mouthed duo no. ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well returned. No, in, in accord with the Daily Mail on this one. Not really. Look, it's it's they do anger very very well. Like UK Grimm kind of yeah. says it all. Um, as, as, you know, from austerity dogs, uh, eat, uh, eating eating alive being another one. All these kind of punning ones taking on the British establishment. Um, I kind of see the moments this kind of personification. There's a great book that Owen Jones did called Chaves of kind of like how the, the British underclass were demonised. And Seaford Mods kind of like 
for me just seemed to be this that articulation of that that we're kind of mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. But in fairness, there can be a lot of humour. Um, but we that track you just played so trendy. Fortunately, you just stopped before Perry Farrell came in because it is actually excruciating. It is actually okay. one of the worst tracks I've heard. Stars. This year by them. Stars. I still go with three. I guess I'm going with three. Yeah. Zara. Um, I don't think you have three stars anywhere for this. No, but you? not far off. It's two and a half because oh. I did actually quite enjoy some of Andrew Fern's production and arrangements. Right. It was Williamson that for me deducted Just the t- other two and a half. The other two and a half. Well, singing. they weren't ever going to get a five for me. But. <laughs> okay, but that's where they went. All right, two and a half and three respectively for you, Kicker. I thought you were going to be much harsher, both of you, on that than you were. There you go. Let's move on to Hitchhawk Line, and also known as Welsh musician and songwriter Hugh Evans. Released his first album in 2010. This week, album number five arrives. It is entitled Milk for Flowers. Let's have a listen to a track called Plastic Man. The opening of Plastic Man from Milk for Flowers' new album from Hitch Hawkline. Your hand, your head went into your hands as that track started, Eamon Sweeney. Before you, um, I think, possibly have a go at this, <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about Hitch Hawkline, Hugh Evans, uh, over the last decade or so and where he is now musically. Yeah, where well, he's now, what, he started around 2010, so he's been going for a decade and a bit. He's kind of moonlighted as a TV and mm. radio presenter. Uh, did a stint working in Los Angeles, um, a very close association with Aldo Harding and Kate Lebon, and who produces this album. And he's very much, I suppose, kind of, I suppose that kind of uh, alongside Kate Lebon, the uh, the current class of Welsh indie pop. Yeah. Uh, that was supposed, you know, rose to prominence in the nineties with Gorky Zagalic Mincy and Super Furries and so on. And for me, I think that's kind of the problem with it. When I listen to something like that, it's just, it's like. It's like 90s indie pop, being obsessed with Abbey Road, but this really jauntiness to it that I find very jarring with the themes of the album. Oh, right, yeah, because it's a very personal album, um, Zara, and you said the minute I started Plastic Man, so you could have picked a better song was your your initial (laughs) response. Um, But this is a personal album inspired by recent events in his life and his relationships, family events. Mm -hmm. What are those and how have they fed into the album? Because it it, it doesn't kind of sound like it from the jauntiness of of that song in particular that they have fed in. Yeah, so his last album was in 2017 and the following year his mother passed away quite sadly um, and that feeds in massively to this album and as we heard that song is really bright and he did juxtapose Mm. a lot of the kind of, this as well, I must say, this is the poppiest he's ever sounded. And lyrically, this is the most straightforward he's ever been. Usually his music is quite abstract and angular. It's been described as kind of dadaist. But this, as we heard, very straightforward. And actually, I kind of think that works very well because you're listening to these jaunty kind of 70s inspired pop um, melodies. And then it's like even more striking, I think, then when you have a hook um, later on where he sings, I want to die, I want to die happy, or that he doesn't need happiness anymore. And you're singing these to these upbeat things, but then it's very striking. And as Eamon said, quite jarring. And I think that that kind of makes it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose if we could play a little bit bit of a second song, which is called Suppression Street, which in some ways maybe says what he's doing on the album. 
tell everyone I'll see you later Was smiling like a crowded elevator that's uh, Suppression Street from H. Hawkline and the new album Milk for Flowers. You, you do get a sense in that one, Eamon, that you can kind of get a sense of the melancholy. I know yeah. it's a little bit yeah. more more, uh, or more downbeat than the Plastic Man that we started out with. Oh, absolutely. Listen, you know, how one reacts to, you know, kind of how he's reacted mm. to tragedy in, in his own life and, and to grief, like, you know, it, it's very much a personal thing. And I think, unfortunately, I can only react to it in a personal way as a listener and it just still doesn't do it do yeah. it for me. And it's not so much about being jarring. Like that track in particular, it just feels like, you know, I've heard a lot of good Super Furry Animals records and this doesn't quite really match up for me as good Welsh indie pop. I, I think it does for you and I was commenting on the lyrics uh, in mm. there uh, which are quite inventive in places, Zara. Yeah, I've been a Hawkline fan for a number of years and I was really pleasantly surprised by this, by how developed it was and you can hear Kate LeBond's hand in this but you can really feel his personality in it too mm. and I really appreciated his approach to grief because it was very personal but also quite universal and I loved how he fleshed out the um, instrumentation that he typically does. Like, There's some really beautiful pedal steel moments on this album. There's some great saxophone parts in it. Those kind of uh, bloopy synth bits. I just thought there was so much given to the listener that I really yeah. appreciated and I loved returning to it. Stars. Four and a half. Four and a half. Not where you are, Eamon <laughs> Sweeney, no, I'm guessing. No, I go more like two and a half. All those things that, that Zara kind of identified, I just thought it was everything in the kitchen sink it was a complete mess. All right. Times, complete mess. Like each one, yeah. uh, doctors differ, patients <laughs> Two and a half and four and a half uh, for Milk for Flowers from Hawk line there. Let's move on to our third and final album, Radical Romantics from Fever Ray. Here's a little taste of a track called Candy. Just a flavour there of Candy um, from Radical Romantics' new album from Fever Ray, a.k.a. Karin Dreyer. And the minute that started, Eamon Sweeney, he said, good music at last. And now I can reveal <laughs> that it was you I quoted when I referred to Fever Ray as a single-minded visionary in the field of pop and electronic music. Your words. That, that, that's a big statement. Yeah, but I think they're just absolutely great. And this... Um, I, I wrote, really liked The Knife back in the day. I mm. thought they were kind of... Really, they they started off really pop and then went more avant-garde as as their career went on. This essentially is a bit of like a knife reunion because her brother uh, Olaf Trier, um works on the first half of the record, so it's almost essentially mm. um, a, a, a knife EP at the beginning of the record, which is where Candy, where that one comes from, and just fantastic tracks and just the way she approaches. Um, they approach kind of like um, gender politics and radical yeah. romantics for a start. I think it's a fantastic Yeah, title. great title, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I've looked into it and no one else has had it, you know, apart from a, a critical study on romanticism. But from I knew I, mean, I read yeah. it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, Zara, you've identified a real Swedish pop sensibility in this album. Absolutely, yeah. I think you can really hear it, even in the the song we heard there. It has that frostiness in mm. the synths, and it also has that really like infectious nature in the arrangements too, where you kind of can't help but dance. Even though, as we were saying, like the themes of the songs 
can be you know quite serious and quite um personal and even like when you have a song that is about um Karen or Karine addressing a bully in her child's school there's still a great frostiness and infectiousness to it that has that great pop sensibility is that, and is that in what they call us is that the song that, that even it out oh, sorry, is no, the one about the, the, the bully yeah I, I want to listen to a little bit of carbon dioxide bit of a track called Carbon Dioxide there. Um, Fever is, is, you've both, I think you're both fairly keen on this album. Is this a good entry point to the music of Fever Eamon, or would you send, yeah, send us elsewhere? I think so, um, because the last album, Plunge, I thought was, a, it was really interesting um, mm. politically and, and environmentally what, you, uh, what they were saying at the, at the time was really pertinent. This is a much stronger record though. I think it's a really good place to start or some of the early night stuff. All right, and what are you saying? Uh, oh, sorry, it starts from you, Eamon. Oh, I go four and a half. Four and a half yeah. on this, and very high indeed. And I have a funny feeling we might be too far off it on this side of the desk as well, Sarah. Um, I really liked how this managed to ma- maintain an inventiveness while being accessible. Um, and I loved the different vocal pitches as well, which created kind of different characters and different experiences. So for me, it was a four just because of how varied and All inviting right. it was. So four uh, from uh, Zara for that. That's Radical Moments, uh, Romantics, rather, Radical Romantics from Fever Ray, Milk for Flowers from H. Hawkline and UK Grimm from Sleaford Mods. The three albums that Zara Hedeman and Evan Sweeney were speaking to us about this evening and that's almost it. Tomorrow evening, the full Oscars programme. We have to look forward to Sunday night with a panel of film critics here with us making their predictions about who's going to win the big awards, calling out how many of our 14 nominations might actually land uh, how many will we be taking home? And we'll have uh, calls live from Hollywood, getting all of the pre-match and pre-weekend excitement, hopefully. That's tomorrow evening here on Arena. But that is our lot for this Thursday night. Le- Leah Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Amadine Paso-Divine was the broadcast coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby. So talk to you tomorrow night, Oscars night, here on Arena. John Creedon will be with you after the news.